You are listening to a Music Secrets Exposed podcast documentary series in association with Waterfall Music and the Paul Lloyd Warner Foundation. Episode 4, Revelation, recording Zen Waterfall for piano and shakuhachi flute, and first whale poems. In recent episodes, a lady has come up by the name of Hannah Veery, who has influenced Paul very much. And there was a write-up on the event of her death um, back in what year, Paul, was that? Did she die? 1992. Yes. So there was a write-up in a local newspaper in Hawaii. And there was a wonderful quotation, which really, I suppose, sums up a lot of Hannah Veary's personal spiritual understanding. And the quote goes like this. Guard your thoughts, keep them free from doubt and fear, accepting only good. Prepare your mind for the best that life has to offer. Become increasingly aware of the one presence, the one spirit, which is God. All sense of lack or limitation should have no place in your consciousness. Everything is possible to you according to your acceptance and the way spirit works through your belief in whatever you believe in. End quote. What a summary of that lady in one paragraph. And given that the last segment that we spoke, you had this amazing reality of receiving your dream piano and a dream home studio to get you on the road in Hawaii. And it all shipped out into Hawaii and you had the money for it and it just manifested itself. And here you are now in Hawaii with your home studio. Wow. Yes, yes. Uh, what hap- what happened it... next? I, I'm just dying <laughs> to know what happens next. Well, I set everything up, uh, you know, and I didn't really have experience in setting up a studio. But I figured it all out and put it together uh, and kept on refining and refining and refining it. Uh, And then I realized I started playing the piano. I started practicing the piano 8, 10, 12 hours a day. It was my job. Did your hands get sore? No, no. No? I was young and my hands were strong. And I, I always went back to the piano even at nighttime. I'm in love with this instrument. Grotri and piano made in Braunschweig, Germany. Perfect, beautiful seven foot four piano with those beautiful bass and mid range and upper range trembles that were like bells. You know, it was like the most exquisite piano I'd ever played. But I just wanted to get, I wanted the, to get to know. Sorry. Yeah, and, and the gentleman then who helped you get this piano, was he kind of around you a lot? 
in the background watching everything? No. No, he just no, left he, you do your thing. Yes, he, he hardly saw me at all. Yeah. That was he, great he, freedom. He, he didn't give me uh, uh, any... He, he was amazing because he gave me absolute freedom to do what I wanted to do without in, in, in intruding upon my life. So he had such intelligence, such deep intelligence to understand you needed that space. He wasn't yes. hounding you for results. No, not at all. Fantastic, no. fantastic. So tell me, um, the equipment arrives in Hawaii. How difficult was it to set up the studio and refine everything? I mean, the equipment, we're thinking back to the years of 1976 through 1977 at this point, and you've received it now in January, I think early of 77. And you're now in this kind of zone of getting your skill refined on the piano and then refining the use of the equipment surrounding you. And given that it's not like the equipment that we have today, which is probably easier to refine in many ways, um, what was it like trying to really get the sound that you absolutely had in your mindset that you wanted to achieve? Good question. Thank you for asking it. Uh, the issue really was learning how to record the piano properly. Okay. Because all the equipment was set up correctly. I had the uh, the, the big studer uh, tape recorders in another room. Uh, then in the big living room was the piano on one side. Well, it was small living room actually. Uh, the piano was on one side. But this is a home up in Maui, 3,700 feet up the slopes of Haleakala. It's very lush up there and beautiful green. And it's, flower fields, all kinds of beautiful things, uh, and the most amazing sunsets you can imagine. So I was living surrounded by beauty, just absolute incredible beauty. And then you could look up high and you could see up to the 10,000 foot, uh, not exactly to the top, but toward the top of the mountain of Haleakala. So, you know, you know where you are, you're, uh, you're up above the tropical zones, uh, you could, so it's not hot and steamy. It's just beautiful California-like weather. And did you sit out in the evenings watching the sunset? Oh, of course. Oh, I can't imagine after, after a day of, of just doing your thing. Oh, right. We ate outside. <laughs> that's, that's complete inspiration. Complete inspiration right there. Uh, and I'm talking sunsets that are so beautiful that over it's, the ocean color pictures that you see in the postcards it's those those are those sunsets beautiful and did your house have a view of the ocean or was it just the surrounding countryside no we looked down towards the island of maui towards west maui uh and you could see the ocean in the distance almost anywhere in hawaii you have a view of the ocean so really okay and yeah. a big, big vast view of the ocean but it's far away not close because you're up on a mountain and so the um, uh, the views are so spectacular. There, one day, this one day, I could not believe it, but the sunset was pure gold, golden light, golden colors. It was like molten gold, and I could not believe it. Everything was bathed in the color of gold until the sun went down, and even afterwards there was an afterglow. I mean, the beauty there is is beyond belief, and that's what I experienced. So it helped inspire me for the piano. But getting back to recording the piano, that was the issue. So again, 
Like well, I'm just about, I'm about to say, like, just what an environment. I have to point this out. You know, we think about artists and positioning themselves in environments which suit them for their craft to be developed, refined, further creation. I mean, what an environment you were in. I mean, for many people listening to this podcast, they will think I'm living in a city, I'm in an apartment complex or something like this, or they're living in a village or a town somewhere. And just that very picture that you're painting is absolutely paradise. Well, living there is not totally paradise, but yes, it is paradisical, uh, paradisical is the word I think. And uh, it is gorgeous there. And remember, it's the 1970s when everything is innocent. There's not a lot of big hotels. There's some, but the place isn't paved uh, into a parking lot, as the Joni Mitchell song went. You know, paved paradise turned into a parking lot or something. Yes. It wasn't quite like that yet. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like that now, unfortunately. So uh, there was an influx of visitors, mostly young um, Caucasian people from the mainland. And we were called uh, the Howleys, H-A-O-L-E-S, <laughs> which, which was okay word means white people, but it also had a, a subterranean thought in the Hawaiian people, sort of, you know, like, uh, uh, who are these people? But now the Hawaiian people are beginning to discover who we are. There's a lot of people who are coming out and from the from all the years of living in Hawaii, going to the waterfalls, studying natural medicine, all kinds. We're now coming out to the public, opening up their own offices, things like that, becoming professionals. And just as I am, I'm now becoming a piano music professional and beginning to make actual professional recordings. So now the issue for me was getting back to your initial question uh setting up everything i play the piano every day 8 10 12 hours a day all day long it was wonderful i was so happy because i was learning my instrument finally i finally had an instrument i could play deeply into and learn how to really play the piano better than i've ever done and bring out all the amazing technique i had and beauty that piano could the resonance the piano could just make. I, I was in heaven daily, every single day. I didn't really know how to record the piano correctly. So 
as as you mentioned uh, Hanaviri, the quote that she said about standing guard at the door of your mind. Uh, so I was now making, it's called a prayer treatment formally, that's the formal term, I'm making a prayer treatment. Dear God, please send me somebody who knows how to record the piano. I'm not just reading books and things, but I need someone, I need a recording engineer to help me. So unbelievably, within weeks or so of, of that actual asking, a prayer, uh, uh, I met, someone brought over a gentleman who was European. I think he was German and he was an engineer. He says, oh, oh, he's your mics? Oh, and he liked my mics because they were German and Austrian. He said, okay, this is what you do. And he placed one microphone into the piano right over the bass strings. And then he brought one over into the piano over the treble strings. And then they had to point away from each other a little bit so there wouldn't be what they call phase phase correction or something. They wouldn't cancel each other out. Uh, phase cancellation was the word. So, uh, okay, so now I learned where to place the, the, uh, the, speak, uh, the, the, the microphone. Well, finally, I started getting recordings that were real. 3D. I had stereo. I had my bass here, my my mid-range, and my trebles here on the right side. Now there are two philosophies in recording the piano. One is from the pianist's point of view, where you're sitting at the piano, so you have your bass middle range and right on the right speaker, uh, and the left is bass on the left speaker. But the other philosophy is recording the piano as the audience hears it. Uh, so then the microphones are not in the piano, but out above the piano, and they're recording it. And they get a nice stereo that way, but it's not the same thing. I wanted the intimacy. And my philosophy was, I wanted people to hear the piano the way I play it, the way I hear it. And like, as you pointed out in the example in our very first episode, podcast where you brought those piano notes up so nicely at the very end of that piece uh, the waterfall and you know you understood you knew you felt the beauty and the sound and the way I played it you know so that's what I did I kept on practicing and learning that then finally I started adding a lot of power to the piano I mean I was doing that every, every day but I was recording big beautiful bass notes and all kinds of things and making up music on, on as I went and then composing music as I, I went and maybe recording, getting the whale pieces right. I'm kind of moving my hands around as though I'm playing the piano while I speak here. And so, but it was incredible time for me to learn how to record and to play the piano the way I wanted to master it. So during the process of recording, I know for amateur pianists of which I would be one, uh, when I was studying piano myself, uh, we had cassette tapes at that point, and I would sometimes record myself and listen back to the quality which I was producing. Did you kind of do that kind of process when you were recording, that you would record, listen back to see where you could make improvements or whatever and move on? Or did you just leave the flow go through you? Constantly, I did that. But I was using a professional tape recorder with very expensive microphones on a great piano. So it, it was the same thing. Um, 
Oh gosh, I have a wonderful story to tell you. It just came to my mind. Well, I didn't plan on the story, so I'll try to make it as short as I can, but it's a really good story. <laughs> You're gonna laugh over this one. Before all this happened, before I got this piano, while I was in my previous piano, um, before I played for the whales, um, I had a girlfriend. And we lived together. I was deeply in love with her. She was very beautiful. I don't think her feelings were the same for me as I for her, but you know how it's like that all the time in many cases. All right. So uh, one day she gets a call from a, a, a man friend, a boyfriend, I think, from Oahu in Honolulu. He said, <clears throat> I'm coming to Maui. I'd love to see you. So I hear her say, well, sure, come and stay with us for the weekend. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, how am I gonna handle, you know, having, you know, her boyfriend come up here when I'm her boyfriend, you know, that's just, raises of jealousy came through me and <clears throat> all the bad things that Hanaburi cautioned against. <laughs> uh, you know, like, I can't handle it, it's gonna be too hard. And so, um, um, then she didn't have a car. She used my car. Uh, and then she said on the day that he was coming in, it was a Saturday, could you uh, please loan me your car? I need to go pick him up at the airport. I was crestfallen because I was just knew this would be a terrible weekend. You know, I mean, we were together every night, you know, Oh, okay. And you're happening in my own home. You know, it's weird. <laughs> Completely yeah. weird. It's the one way to Maui. push it. This is Maui. The people were the more open way, but I wasn't. I wasn't that kind of person. So I said, no, you can't have the keys. So, okay, I'll walk out of your life and never see me again. Okay, here's the keys. <laughs> <laughs> and so I gave her the keys and she's gone. So a friend of mine, um, had loaned me a cassette player. This is before all this recording equipment. She loaned me a very nice big cassette player. And she said, you can record your music on this too. I never had used it. So I put a cassette in there and I put it right in the piano, right, you know, when you open up the piano, right mm -hmm. in there. Yeah. I sat down and I played my heart out on the Mason and Hamlet just because all my feelings, I just played my heart out with every bit of emotion that I, I could muster, the feelings that I had, and love that was in my heart, and all that kind of beautiful things. Well, I never recorded myself before. I never heard my music. When you play it, you hear it, but I never heard it. Okay. Okay, so what happens is that um, when, it, when I finished playing, after about 45 minutes or so, breathless. I stopped and said, well, okay, let me go get some lemonade and go out and bring a blanket to the back lawn, which was a beautiful green lawn, nice thick grass. And I go outside, there was sunny after sunny morning, late morning, noonish maybe. And uh, I brought the uh, cassette player out there glass of lemonade, sat down on the blanket and turned on the recorder. 
Well, I could not believe my ears. I could not believe it. It was so good. It was so beautiful. You were shocked at your own shocked. skill. I, I didn't know. People used to say, oh, you're great, Paul, you're great. And, okay, thank you very much. You know, you stay humble. But, but I didn't know how beautiful the music was. I had no idea. And I had a big collection of LPs with a lot of piano music from the great pianist. And after listening to it for, for the 45 minutes, I realized that I belong in, in the LP collection too. I'm as good as any of those guys. You know, different that, that belongs there. Wow, I didn't know that. That was that was a revelation, a big moment. I connected to my music, and this this is previously to all this. But anyway, so uh, I am outside. Sorry, Paulo, you said you connected to your music. Did that make a big difference then, going forward? Oh, it, 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 it I'm sure it did. Me, it, it it is what made me who I am today. That recording and the jealousy that I had, and all the emotions that I had. That when is that recording it? It's so good. Yeah. I don't have that recording anymore. It's a cassette that I don't know what happened to it. Maybe it's in my archives, but who knows the condition. Anyway, so um, I'm listening to the music. And presently, I hear my car drive up on the front. I hear two doors close. Oh my God. Okay, I have to deal with this. Okay. So uh, there, she hears my uh, music out in the backyard and so she comes she brings her friend out very nice guy uh and they're listening to the music and and he's she's saying that's beautiful and he's saying that's gorgeous music that's yours i said yeah i just made it said, wow so uh i said look let's listen to it from the beginning i'd like you to all hear it together you know so I stopped it, turned to the beginning, and went and refreshed lemonade for everybody. And we all sat and drank lemonade and listened to that 45 minutes. And there were comments, great comments, all the way through. Finally, at the end, uh, I got like the best possible commentary from both of them. And then she had to go inside the house, and he came over to me and whispered to me, he said, I know how you must feel about me being here this weekend. So I want you to know that I honor the relationship you have with her because she told me about it. And I would prefer to, you know, sleep by myself in whatever extra room you have, but I will not I will not be with her this weekend. That's just out of respect for you. My goodness. Is that a gentleman or what, you know? But that happened over the music did it. They he, he understood and so I, you know, it, all's well that ends well. It ended beautifully. And he and I became friends. <laughs> oh, boy. You became even friends. A, even after that relationship did end yes. uh, with her, yeah. uh, he and I stayed friends for a long time. That's amazing. Uh, so uh, I now finally learned how to record a piano. And I practiced and I always refined and replaced the microphone slightly and listened to the headphones and just got it right, just got it right. Finally, it took me, oh gosh, months, months and months to do it. Moving on. So, all right, this is 1977, January, February, March. 
maybe by April or so, I've learned how to record the piano. I'm practicing daily. I'm really reaching heights of horror. I mean, I'm just doing stuff that's just amazing. And they went on to half inch, 15 inch wheels. It means they're, they're, they're thicker than the average tape recorder, the regular tape recorder, a thicker tape that moves only once through the, uh, through the heads, the microphone, the, the tape recorder heads. Uh, and they go at 15 inches per second, twice the speed. So you get a very professional recording that way. All right, so now I was doing all that. I got it down. And someone brought over to me a friend whom they knew who lived in Tokyo. He's American. Okay. And he was studying with um, a great, very great um, uh, Japanese shakuhachi uh, player, performing artist. Uh, his name will come to me in a moment. But uh, he studied, studied with him. Now, there were a number of schools of the shakuhachi is the five hole bamboo flute. And you know, when you hear Zen music and things like that, that's the, that's the instrument. The yes. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are a number of schools of shakuhachi playing uh, all around Japan. It's like there's different schools for ikebana, which is flower arrangements, and schools for various kinds of cooking and so forth. Uh, that's the way Japan is. They had a number of schools for shakuhachi. But apparently this man, he was the top one. He was considered the leader and the very best of all the schools. Not to say that one was better than the other, but he uh, traveled the world and gave concerts of modern contemporary Japanese symphonic music where the shakuhachi was used. Music no one ever heard of here in the West. It was traveled all over the world and gave those concerts. He was very well known. So Elliot was the man, name of the person who came over to visit me. Young man, uh, very nice guy. Uh, he, uh, he came over and he had on his back or shoulder, he had a, a whole group of shakuhachi. There were about seven or 10 shakuhachis maybe 12, uh, in, in a satchel that he had. And he took them out and he pulled them all out one by one, different sizes, and laid them out on the table for me to look at. So, wow, all these shakuhachis, why do you need them all? He says, because every single one of them is, is a different key. When you play a shakuhachi, you're only playing in one key, you can't change keys. So therefore, it's a shakuhachi for every key that corresponds on the piano. And he just took the notes of the piano, you know, from the full octave up, with white and black keys all the way up. Those 12 keys are the 12 shakuhachis. I said, well, how can you afford all those? Said, they must be incredibly expensive. He said, this is the way they do it in Japan. They said, when you, when you go to a great shakuhachi maker, these people, usually men, they go out into the bamboo forest and they pick very choice bamboo. They bring it back to their, their studio and they dry it 
sometimes for 10, 12, 15 years. It's wow. a long time to cure, to cure the wood. I think that's the way he said for the bamboo. It, it took time to cure it. And then one day, uh, uh, the maker would look at, at a certain bamboo and said, ah, now it's your time. Let me make you into a flute. 10 I'm, to 12 I'm, years. Wow. That's well, a long time. less than that. I'm, I'm yeah. emphasizing the, the length of time. It's the same thing on a piano soundboard. They, uh, they buy the, the wood, uh, usually it's a, a pine, certain kind of a pine, uh, and they cure it for many, many years. They, they, they put it into a very, very slow burning oven for, for a number of years. I'm talking extremely low temperatures, just to keep it very settled and to get the wood all perfectly cured before they make the soundboard. That's what the great pianos do. That's why they're so expensive. So anyway, getting back to the story here. Uh, so you go into the Shakuhachi Maker Studio, and if you're a Shakuhachi player, you know, then you you play for them and you're good. Then you have an arrangement with them where you, you play the Shakuhachis and you choose the one that you want, that you know that's your, your instrument. And then you sign a piece of paper with them and they give you the shakuhachi for one year to try to practice, to play with, to concertize with, whatever you need. A year's time, you either bring it back to them, give it, return it, or you give them the money. That's amazing. That's the way that they No, did but it. this this idea of trust, you know, that they had such trust in the in the sakuhachi player to either even come back with. Yeah these valuable yeah. instruments as they were. Well, there'd be a, just a code of honor. I yeah, mean, exactly. Beautiful code of honor. Especially because this is the most sacred of all, the flutes yeah. in Japan, because it's used in Zen music and modern music, whatever it is. So Zen was, uh, so, so Elliot was studying with this, God, why is his name not coming to me? Um, and uh, I, I wish I had a tip of my tongue. He's studying with him uh, and has really reached the place. He lived for several years in Tokyo. Now he was on vacation in Maui and he's at my home. Well, he sees the new piano. I play for him and everything. He says, let's just go have some fun. Uh, I'm going to pick up the shakuhachi. What key would you like to play in? Oh, I said, let's try E. Okay, so he pulls out his E flute, and I start to play slowly. He starts to play slowly, and we're in perfect tune. I can't believe it. And I just sort of ad-lib something here and there, and he goes something there and there and echoes me, and suddenly we're making music. I couldn't believe it. So I said, look, can you stay here tonight, and we'll play together? I'll record us. Yeah, sure, sure. So in, in those days, I was, I was what you call a sproutarian. I grew all my own sprouts, and I made all my food from sprouts. Yeah, I'd buy vegetables and fruits and things, but sprouts were my main food. And, hey, they call them microgreens now, do they? Well, yes, the but these were, these were like lentil and sunflower sprouts. Very healthy. Uh, that were that you'd steam a little bit and then, then you run them through a champion and they come out as a mash. 
and you mash them together with onion, just like making a hamburger with onions and flavors and things like that. You put them in a pan of olive oil and you make an actual burger made from sprouts. Beautiful, tasty. Sounds so lovely. Oh, they were tasty. so delicious. Yeah. Like we had a big sprout meal for us and everything that night with Elliot. And he was very impressed with the foods that I was eating and everything. So it was all really good, all really good. So time came. Now I was on a road, uh, the upper cooler road, and uh, there were cars and the cars would make noise. But so we chose to start recording around 10 p.m. when the cars all stopped. Uh, occasionally there might be a car, hardly. But we chose 10 p.m. And so, okay, let's start with this flip, this key up. We started with whatever key it was. And the first piece we recorded, I could not believe it. I could not believe the quality of the music we were making. It was truly beautiful. We didn't know where we were going to go. I didn't know what notes I was going to play. I didn't know where it was going to go. But I just followed him and he followed me. But then we departed from each other and I did a little solo. He came in and did some solos. And we all came together and it worked. It came and worked as an actual piece of music. It was a band. First in time. History, in history. Never before was the piano and the shakuhachi recorded. That's amazing. Never, not, there's no recordings in, in Japan at that time. The year is still 1977. Yes. Must be. So you, you broke new ground. You broke new ground in terms of instrumentation. We did. In, uh, first time ever. So we recorded all through the night, and then the next day we listened to what we liked. And we threw away what we didn't. What like. time? What time did you stop? What time did you stop recording? Was it like dawn? No, we recorded till maybe two or three in the morning. Okay. We recorded for two, for four or five hours at the max. Okay. Uh, so we listened to everything the next day, and we saw that we had about five really good pieces, but not enough for an album. So I said, look, you know, why don't you sleep here tonight and then we'll spend the day tomorrow and we'll record tomorrow night and finish our album. He said, yeah, sure. How many pieces did you need for the album altogether? We needed about, four, in those days, 45 minutes was the length of an album. Was the length, okay. Yeah, the average length. So uh, we needed 45. And so through the day we did our thing and then the next night we recorded and we got some gorgeous pieces. And then the following morning we listened to everything. We put it all together, we put names on them, we decided which piece comes first, next, 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 and that. I made him a cassette, two cassettes, which he brought back to Tokyo. Okay. And he gave one to his master, teacher. Okay. Who listened to it, and his comments were to Elliot in Japan. The pianist is amazing. 
You were terrible. Oh my goodness. Oh no. Oh poor Elliot. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I know. It was just too much. Elliot told me over the phone we had phone calls. And uh, he, uh, we laughed our heads off over it. Because oh, that's, that's is, funny. Elliot is incredible. When you listen to this album, you hear that actually Elliot is great. And what was the name of the album? What? How did you title the album? Zen Waterfall. Zen Waterfall. Oh, yeah, that's I'd already recorded waterfall music, yeah. and I incorporated some, you know, some of my water. But it was all original. I didn't repeat anything that is normally in my music. Uh, and we did a great job. can't imagine recording like 10 p.m. right through into the early morning creating an album. How many days? Two, three nights? Two, two nights. Two nights only. Mm-hmm. But that you had such symbi- symbioticism, if you get me, of coming together oh, and we were, we just were. in harmony. We were. With each other's spirit to, to produce the, the goods, as they say. We our, our spirits, our minds came together. I've never recorded before or since uh, with anybody. Well, I really so completely was absorbed into that. And do you think again, coming back to the spiritual side of this whole music story of your life, do you think there was a spiritual connection between the two of you? Had you a very deep spiritual understanding or awareness of each other? Yes, but I, I put on my Zen Buddhist hat to be able to connect with him. I did not have my Hanaviri hat on. Yeah. That would not have worked. Yeah, because he was living in Japan, he he became very Zen. He was playing Zen music. Yeah. So and I loved Zen music. I loved Zen. That was mm-hmm. the first study I did when I came to Hawaii. Before I met Amaviri, I was doing Zen meditation. So I put my Zen hat on, and we just we connected on the Japanese aesthetic. 
So what happened next after that event? So you've now Zen Waterfall recorded. I presume you've got to make an income as well, which involves performance. So how did that all evolve now that you've got your recording studio, you have your piano in place, you're after having this amazing Zen music experience. Well, 
What happens next? What happens next is I have no distribution. And living in Hawaii before the internet uh, and telephone calls were very expensive to the mainland. Uh, I'm not in the position in any way to start distributing the music. I didn't even have the money to make a professional cassette that I'd send out to the public. So uh, I just kept it in my back burner and played it for people, gave them copies of it, and just kept on going that way until later on I become professional. That that will come on in our next episode. Uh, moving on, I I'd like to, if I may, talk about what was also there was a secondary thing going on that was part of already what we know, and that was the whales. Because when I, I came back, even though I have a studio and it was my main thing, I, I knew that I would write a book about whales. Because remember when I was in Los Angeles? You were involved in the, that's the, it, film, the film with the whales, I, yeah. I, and, I, and I saw what the whales were doing when I was playing for them. That moment it hit me as a poet. I said, I must write a book about the whales one day. Uh, and I had that in my mind all the time. So when I got back to Maui and the studio was all set up, I'm in the library getting every book of whales I could find and reading everything I could find, absorbing it like, like a sponge. I mean, I'm even reading the old whaling books of when the whalers were out you know, from the 18th, 19th century. And, you know, terrible stuff that they did. And I, the idea of whaling was so bad, but nevertheless, I read everything I could. Then I moved on and I found out there were a number of research teams, research teams working in Maui. One of them was called the Pacific Whale Foundation. Uh, and the, at that time, the gentleman who was running that that nonprofit, his name was Greg, I forgot his last name. Uh, so I was talking with him and he was giving me tapes of, of whale sounds of, of the time and, and they hadn't yet interpreted the whale sounds. They gave me whale sounds to listen to and I listened and tried to tune into them and, and try to just imagine what they're really talking about. What, what, what is the word? And then we discovered he, showed me how every year the whale songs change slightly year after year after year. The whale song is never the same. The humpbacks go up to the Arctic. That's where they spend their summers. And then they feed as they do all the feeding. They don't eat in Hawaii. They, uh, and uh, then they navigate back down and they spend their winters in Hawaii. Uh, and uh, they um, you know, that's where they birth their, their little well babies, and that's where they, you know, create new well babies and do all that kind of thing. Uh, and so they, they, they have these songs, mostly done by males, and, and they're not really songs, but they're these sounds, these beautiful sounds that sound like music to us. But they change every year. It's amazing. And so they had not figured out what that was, but I figured it out. Not that I figured it out as a scientist. I didn't have the scientific uh, knowledge to be able to do it that way. It was more that um, they had to be conversing about what was going on in their lives. That's, 
what the song had to be about, so-and-so made it. It became mates. They became, they finally became mates, these two young ones. And they, they it's like they married each other. Uh, so-and-so gave birth. They named their baby this. Uh, and it takes several females to prop up the mother whale, keep her propped up so she can breathe while she's giving birth. It's a beautiful thing to see. The whales hold each other really? up so that the mother is able, is, is able to breathe. That's amazing. They, so they all serve each other. And so each year there's going to be deaths and new births, new whale babies. I think that's what the song, why the song changes. They're reporting what's going on. Now that's my theory. I have no idea if it's true, but that I theorize that. So anyway, with all the reading I did, uh, I didn't know enough. So I went over to Oahu, uh, where the University of Library used to teach at the University did of you? Hawaii. Uh, yeah, I taught photography. Oh, another story. Oh yeah, that's that's a part of our. That's not germane to our discussion. Not now, but <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, I had uh, access to the um, to the graduate library at the University of Hawaii, which was very extensive. It's a great library, uh, and uh, there I found so many wonderful books that I brought back with me. And then I made an arrangement to the local Maui library. Um, no, no, I'm sorry, the local library of the junior college to get books sent back to me and forth so I don't have to go back there. So I read every book known, known about whales that I could find. I learned, I wrote notes down and everything. I, I understood the humpback whales, the sperm whales, their whole behavior, the blue whales, their behavior, the fins, you know, the say whales, uh, they're up north and the, all the different kinds of whales. I, I learned about the different races of whales uh, and they all have different habits, different ways of living. Uh, and so I didn't become an expert in that field, but I became very knowledgeable okay. in that field because I'm going to write a book about whales. And have so, Paul, when you on. were studying the whales, did you only study one species of whales or whales in general? All, all species, species of whales. Okay. I, made, I made a point to study all species. Uh, and there are, there are eight. Eight species. Uh, all told. Eight major species. They found a new one, but um, that, we don't have to talk about that. Uh, yes, you've got the humpbacks. You have the blue whales, the fin whales, the uh, beluga whales, the white whales from the north. Then you have the say SEI whales. They live more in the Arctic regions. Uh, and then you have the, uh, what's their name? They're bowhead whales. Uh, and then there's another one. Uh, doesn't come to my mind right now. Okay, so those, I studied all of them, but the humpbacks were That's what I was just going to ask, which was your specialty, which were the ones particular to Hawaii and that whole experience. Back. Right, I played for them, and, and then I went to other uh, 
other researchers uh, around the island and talked to them and they gave me some well recordings. I listened intently to them. And then uh, Greg at the Whale Foundation, he gave me the rights to uh, own, I, I paid him and he gave me the rights to own maybe 30 minutes of whale sounds. Wow. Which I would use musically yes. in, in, in an album, which that comes later, but I, he gave me that permission. So I had those whale sounds. All right. So, when you heard the whale sounds yeah. for the first time, what did you think? That nothing like I've ever heard. Like nothing that exists. But it was a language, an underwater language. The most intelligent species in the ocean with the biggest brains for any mammal uh, who have the power beyond just be speaking words, they have the power to have sonar. And that sonar sends out signals that allow them to see into the depths, see into the far spaces, spaces. No, even in the distance, who might be the enemy, who may be nice, what schools of fish are over there, what whales are over there, and what mountains, mountain tops do you see underwater? All that, they, they know. Plus, they have an ability to use language, in a sonar language, in a very chattering way, dolphins especially. So anyway, so, so all of this excited me no end. And I'm thinking, I've got to write a book about whales, and I start to write some poetry, but nothing comes out really well. And it, it's, it's haunting me. Wait a minute, I'm a poet. And I can't write well poetry. What's going on? I've studied everything. I can't, I'm, maybe I know too much and I have to lose. I don't know what it was, but it didn't happen. For about two or three years, you know, from 1977, when I came back to study wells, 78, 79, two years later. Okay, let's jump ahead. I'm recording piano music. Um, and um, really mostly focused on that. But I know the Book of Wells is germinating inside of me. All right, so Kula is, there's no town really, it's just an area where people live, it's mostly farmland. Uh, very nice houses, it's not like wealthy place, but it's just a place where mostly farmers will live there for many, many years. A lot of Japanese people. Uh, so I was down in, a, there's a little tiny town, which was really not a town. It just had a couple of places to eat. There were cafes, had a barber shop or something, nothing much. Uh, and so I went to one of my favorite places. I had wonderful coffee and muffins and everything. I had breakfast that morning, a full breakfast. You know, eggs, bacon, the whole thing. I don't eat that anymore, but that's what I ate then. Cave. I had a wonderful breakfast. I really was full and felt good. An English breakfast, you know. <laughs> that gets you going. Lots of good coffee, orange juice, you know, the whole meal. So I'm in my car and I took the shortcut roads. Instead of going around on the paved roads, there's a dirt road that you can take a shortcut from the Kula 
town area up to my house on the upper pool road. It winds around and has dips in it, but my car can handle it. I'm going up the road and I'm feeling really good, happy. And I get to the top of the top where my road is, the upper pool of the highway. You stop and then you look around and then you turn right to go to my house. Well, that morning I was in such a great state of mind. I looked as I got up to the top and I was going a little fast. And, you know, there were no cars coming this way, no cars coming that way. I didn't stop. I just turned right in a very, very strong elliptical curve my car made. It's an elliptical turn with, with a, a certain amount of speed, not, not rubber you know, on the road, but a good speed around the curve. And so I'm going up a hill and I'm going on a curve that's going down a hill. And somehow as I made that curve in my mind, it was like going on a roller coaster. You know, he's just like, and you, and, you, and you change, something changes. And I get a thought in my mind. The thought was, write poetry. You know, I got a poetry feeling in me of writing poetry. I got the, uh, the bar came, the bar came to me, you know. And, you know the, muses, the muses came, I should say. Go, I said, go home, write poetry. And now I'm going down the hill. I said, about what? And it's like, whales, whales. <laughs> just out of the blue, just so, like, okay, go. Out of the blue, out of the blue, literally out yeah. of the blue. And so um, I got home and literally ran into the house and grabbed my notebook and I started writing my first whale poem. And it took me a little while to get it right, but it, it was almost like dictated to me, but yet, it was not uh, what people called, uh, you know, it, 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 it was not a, it was spiritual, but it wasn't like dictated from above. It just came coming through you, yeah. There's the word channeling, it was not okay. channeled. It was, it was my knowledge of whales and my love for whales, playing for them, that this first poem came out. And I'd like to recite oh, it. Oh, yes, please. Yes. And it goes like this. I'll recite it in the dramatic way in which the poem is written, okay? And so, uh, because otherwise, why, why do it? Mm. All right, let me get my <clears throat> poetic voice here. <laughs> Stand a little further away from the microphone here and give you my nice organ-like voice. This is Whale speaking. That was what the difference was. It wasn't me writing about whales. The whale was speaking to me. The whale was speaking out in English. That was what I didn't realize. That's what was given to me as the gift that day. And um, a whole bunch of poems followed that. And I'll tell you that story after I tell you this. Well, it goes like this. O oh, human man and woman who spawn upon the land, your world rises from dark chasms far below these sands. We greet you with our songs, having lived alone among you in the waters of our years. 
Hear the voice, our shrill and call. We are your elders from the deeps. Listen through your hearts as we, and you will feel our visions, great and small. That is, that is wonderful. Would you like to hear it yeah, again? Yeah, say it again. <laughs> I'm just taking it in. Good. Oh, human man and woman who spawn upon the land, your world rises from dark chasms far below these sands. We greet you with our songs, having lived alone among you in the waters of our years. Hear the voice, our shrill and call. We are your elders from the deeps. Listen through your hearts as we, and you will feel our visions, great and small. That's magnificent. That's magnificent. The way I felt when I, when I read this, I said, oh my God, this is really coming through me. This is it. This is what I've been waiting for. Oh, and then I went to the next one and the next one. And how and many poems one. came to you? About 25 and all were carefully wrought out, you know, and they just came to me and then I had to get to a language while right each one of them crossing out a word putting the word in in what time frame are we talking of we're talking from about noon that day all through the day all through the night i mean i got up and had a bite to eat and then up till about three or four in the morning and i finished the first 25. And just and to that, repeat, what year was this? 1977. No, 1979. 1979. So you played for yes. the whales in That's 76 and now you're you're really after really deeply digging deep. Deep. And this comes through you in 79. Magnificent. Yeah. Uh, of, of the... Uh, I guess the 25, whatever the number was, the, bo the book is divided into sections. And the first section is the well of speaking to humankind. The first one was after the first, but I'll, I'd like to read you the uh, last poem in the first okay. section of the book. This one I'm very proud of because I'm using onomatopoeia you know the phrase onomatopoeia, words that sound like what they describe. No, I did. I wasn't aware. I I think I have heard of it, but I wouldn't have remembered the meaning. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's like uh, 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 let's see. Uh, I'm trying to remember an English poem that uses it very well. 
like you know the buzzing sound the fly yes i understand buzz the word buzz yes yeah. i understand right, right, yeah exactly. all right so i'm gonna get my glasses on for this one and uh magnificent now this one here is um a, a huge storm comes up uh a, the kind of storm where where whales have to um really scurry down as far as they can under the water and they have to come up for air but they might be hit by by ice uh on the blowhole uh they might get hurt coming up to breathe so that to be very careful when the storm and the sea is raging and moving all around they're heaving around so you can imagine that is what the situation okay. is it's okay. a hurricane that comes through so it's very short it's only 10 miles it goes like this all night winds speed along these waves so hard they crash on upward motion young ones scream for air inhaling blasts of water oceans quake below in surging densities while dangerous whistle soundings through the undertow at dawn cold rain fighting with sheer cracking force hits like packs of hungry barracuda fishes flee from lower pressure zones exhausted whales aching helpless vertigo cluster down to even deeper sanctuaries that's an education in itself it sounds it it sounds like those poems would be wonderful for people to read because they're understanding from the whales point of view about what we as humans do and how we impact them whether we know it or not right they have a life they're intelligent their life is the ocean uh ours is of the land um but we where can people find these, these poems can they buy the book of poetry no the book is i'm going to publish a second edition as soon as okay. i can but no they can't okay. find them no and i took them down off the internet because i was advised by my attorney don't you have all your poems up there people will steal them and put them in other languages and say it's their own oh, it's, so yeah. i took it okay. down yeah you know that's um, amazing paul reluctantly but yeah isn't that isn't that that is there's something there's something I, so very moving yeah yeah very moving yeah. you start to look at it from a different perspective you know you can study something with um an academic mind you can study statistics you can study the dictionary meaning of terms and understandings 
But when you actually communicate it with an emotional context, it becomes a different meaning altogether. Um, this now bring us to the point of, I've written these first poems, the first chapter of the book, uh, The Well Speak to Humankind. And I'm done about, oh, 3.34 in the morning. But I'm not tired. I'm so excited by, by what I've accomplished. Finally, the book is coming out. Finally, I realized it wasn't me. It was the whales who had to speak to us. So that's why I had to go deep into the empathy to empathize with whales, use methodologies that I never thought of doing in poetry. I mean, I usually didn't write about myself in poetry. I early did, but all my main poetry was about things, about the world. But this was about now the whale intelligence coming out to us and showing human beings what is really going on. And how can I do that non-scientifically? But I did study with those scientists. I learned from them and I read every book I could find. So I absorbed so much, plus I had played for them. Uh, you know, I had all that background there. I felt qualified because it just came through me. Uh, I was in heaven, cloud nine. I was buzzed with this joy and happiness for having these first poems coming around. I was walking around my house at 3.30 in the morning. Now, what am I gonna do? I can't go to sleep. <laughs> I'm so happy. Oh, look what has happened. I'm not tired. God, thank you, God. Thank All this stuff is going through my mind like that. Okay, so what do you do at that hour? I figured it out. There's only one thing I can do is that's get into my car get some warm clothes on and drive up to the top of Haleakala to the 10,000 foot part of the mountain. I live 3,700 feet up, but it was a big winding highway that got you up there. Beautiful highway and it was dark and people go up for sunrise. Even tourists, many tourists go to Haleakala okay. for sunrise. They get up at four in the morning and get in the cars or get in the So it's a, it's a well-known location in other words well-known thing to do even though it's not like a lot of people do it but enough well we often did it you know let's go to Haleakala for sunrise well today i was just by myself i lived alone and uh now is the time got my car i knew it'd be very cold out there and my warmest jacket and drove up to the top it was just dawn Sun hadn't come up yet. But as we're going up, it was very um, misty on the way up, all the way to the top. Uh, it never been misty before, whenever I drove up there, but it was misty all the way to the top. When I got up there, to the very top, on one side, you could see into the early dawn of Haleakala into the crater. That's 22 miles wow. long. The largest dormant volcano in okay. the world. The sun's going to come up from there. And on the other side is where I drove up from, which is all misty. 
Okay, so I'm at the top of the mountain there, and it's very clear up at the very top, the sun beginning to come up. Sun's rays are beginning to rise. And it's wonderful, but there's a whole big mist on the other side of the mountain going the other way. And so suddenly, without any forethought or recognition that some, a great atmospheric phenomenon happened, it's a phenomenon that's known, first was noted in the Alps, okay. but it happens anywhere in the world where you have a mountain and you have mist. Okay. You have to have a mountain with sunrise, clear sunrise on one side and mist on the other side. When that happens, and it happened that day, I saw what's called the specter of the Brock. Oh my goodness. And that was the morning and after all the poetry. The, 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 yes, the morning after that night of poetry. Wow. Uh, day and night. And so what happens is that the, the sun comes up. The sun is coming now. It's, it's risen a little bit, maybe five, ten degrees above uh, the horizon. And now it's projecting your shadow, the shadow of your body, out into the misty area and you see you know, the shadow of your body maybe 40 50 feet away it's hard to imagine but you see like your arms going out and they thin out and becomes like little tendrils and your fingers you can even see your fingers they're so clear on the clearest time and what of, what are you of, thinking of, of like you're spectrum. looking at what? I had seen it once before, but only in a very mild okay. way. I knew what it was. Yeah. Uh, and so here I am, there's other tourists walking around. Everyone's seeing the specter of the rocket. And we're all looking, I'm, I'm turning this way because that's the way it was in my mind. And I'm, I'm looking out into the gulf of where I drove up from. That's, that's where Maui, the island of Maui lies down there. Uh, and it was all misty. It wasn't raining. It can't be rain. It can't be clouds. It has to be mist. Fine, fine mist. You see the little particles of water. You know, very fine mist. Uh, and uh, uh, the sun is brilliant and warm. <clears throat> and there is your shadow. And you see your arms go out and you even see your fingers. Your fingers are like little tiny threads meeting your shadow way out there. And, and then on top of all of that, there is a rainbow around you. It's just a wonder it's of a, nature, isn't it? It's a wonder of nature. Sometimes it's more of a halo around you rather than, but that day it was, it was so brilliant. So it's perfect, perfect conditions for the spectrum of the box. The experiences you've had are stunning. And what, did, in your mind, after the experience of writing the poetry, what did that symbolize for you to say that you're after this, well, I'll call it in inverted commas, crazy poetry experience. I it's not crazy, okay, but we'll just say, wow. And then you're looking at this spectre of the Brock, like, what does it symbolize in your mind that there is something? Well, it, it, yes, well, what it was was, it, it was confirmation from nature through nature but created by the spirit created by what Hanaguri had taught us 
about God. It, it, it was the it was a confirmation that yes, I'm on the right path. That this is the right thing. That you you just intuitively knew what to do. And you came up and here's your reward. Here's the reward for your all your hard work from noon till three o'clock in the morning. Here it is. And you're seeing something that rarely ever happens so well. And I I witnessed it. I was part of it. It was so moving, so profoundly, so profoundly moving to me that I had tears in my eyes. And you walked around, you saw other people, everyone had tears of some kind, you know. Stunned, amazing, amazing, amazing thing to see. And there it was, God in action. God in action. All through these podcasts, I keep saying amazing. Probably the listeners are fed up with hearing me saying amazing. But I'm even emotional listening to you talking about it. Because I'm thinking back to 76, suddenly this experience happens, you evolve into having a piano on a sloop. It goes from there into LA, you get your dream piano, you have your studio, you meet an amazing Zen musician, you create amazing music that has touched people's lives. Um, now you have, after years of dedication to this whole event, with the whales you have created poetry which you struggled to create initially and then suddenly it was like a flashlight was switched on and it just zoom here we go and then as you said yourself in your own words nature rewarded you what a yeah. story what a story <laughs> Thank you. magnificent Thank you. I, I... Thank you so much. It ha that happened exactly the way we just spoke about it. it you, you can't make the stuff up. You know, it, it, that's the way it exactly happened. Just before we finish the podcast, I'm going to reread Hannah Veary's quotation. I feel it's, oh, it's so yeah. important to this story because what she taught you had a deep influence on you so that you knew how to handle those emotions when they hit and they didn't take power over you. I'll just reread it. Hannah Veary says, or said, I should say, guard your thoughts, keep them free from doubt and fear, accepting only good. Prepare your mind for the best that life has to offer. Become increasingly aware of the one presence the one spirit which is God. All sense of lack or limitation should have no place in your consciousness. Everything is possible to you according to your acceptance and the way spirit works through your belief in whatever you believe in. Thank you so much, Sylvia. That is so good. My pleasure, Paul. My pleasure. So true. To find out more about Waterfall Music and the Paul Lloyd Warner Foundation, go to waterfallgiving.com.